0: Uh, this has been um, this this conference has exceeded uh, my hopes and expectations I have heard both men speak uh, in other venues and uh, I knew that uh, they were both very bright very articulate uh, and that and and, and like both of you even surpassed what I had, had hoped and expected. It was uh, quite remarkable, uh, your presentations. Um, as a non-specialist, I'm always blown away uh, by what you have to say, and, and, but not just that, just the way that you uh, are able to take some really um, difficult concepts uh, and are able to communicate those uh, as well as you have. I want to apologize to the, the uh, audience who have been uh, watching uh, over f- Facebook uh, the streaming, uh, uh, the streaming uh, video ac- across Facebook. I think we've had over 10,000 different viewers uh, this afternoon, so we've had a, a spectacular audience. Uh, the difficulty is, is that they've not been able to see... Uh, the animation in the PowerPoint, which has put them at a tremendous uh, disadvantage. The good news is uh, that um, when we put the material uh, on the CFC website, uh, we will combine uh, the respective uh, PowerPoint presentations with the the audio-video talk, and at that time, one will be able to see it. Of course, that'll be too late to help the students who are writing the reports, uh, because it'll take them a month to do that. So uh, you all unfortunately are out of luck. Uh, you'll have to, to 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 write it as it is. Um, so um, we, Dr. Venema, you 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 just heard uh, Dr. Jensen uh, and make his presentation. Uh, let me give you the first opportunity to give your observations of what you've heard and perhaps questions you might have for Dr. Jeanson, And then after he he does so, then I'll ask you the same question.
1: Okay, great. Oh. Am I on then? Yes, you are. Now I'm on. Good. <coughs> first, uh, first off, I want to say thank you to Nathaniel for your presentations, very clear and articulate, and I appreciate them. <coughs> Excuse me. I also want to underscore the fact that I think it's okay for brothers in Christ to have these differences and have these dialogues. So I hope that this can be a model for how to talk graciously about these issues. I recognize that for some communities it's, it's seen as more of a central faith issue than for other communities. But I think even like Answers in Genesis says that this is not a salvation issue, right? This is an issue one's interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis does not... You'll have to ask him. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll let that go. I think, I think I've read that on the, the website. Is that question one? <laughs> <laughs> Just right off the top, I want to read something in my defense from the book um, that talk about uh, where I say, you know, we, there aren't young earth creationists that are trained, correctly trained in population genetics. And that's actually something that doesn't come from me. That actually comes from within the young earth creationist community. So we've mentioned Todd Wood before. This is what Todd Wood has to say about it. So I'm basically just taking what he said and sort of rephrasing it. So Todd says this, the population reconstructions are complex and not easily understood by lay people right now. So creationist responses lag behind the current science and the best your typical creationist can do is cast dispersion on the science. Until we have a creationist well-trained in modern theoretical population genetics, I think we will continue to have only unsatisfactory answers to these ancestral population reconstructions. So I guess maybe one comment um, to say right off the bat is that this is not just a conversation between young earth creationists and evolutionary creationists. It's also a conversation within the scholarly young earth creationist community. And one of the things that I've enjoyed over the years, I actually have a friendship with Todd. I haven't yet met him in person, but we, have a, we email back and forth. You know, to be completely honest, Todd says, you know, Dennis's advocation of evolution makes me very uncomfortable. And that's, that's reasonable. But he says, but we have a lot of common. And he, and he says, we actually we have Jesus in common. And Jesus, he says, is a lot to have in common. And I, thought, I just love that particular turn of phrase. So yes, Jesus is a lot to have in common. Absolutely. So that was just on that particular point, I guess what I'll be looking for in the coming years is, so and this is Todd is somebody who has read Carter. He has read Tompkins and whatnot. So
2: That's actually incorrect. So it's not actually a conversation within the Young Earth literature. I don't mean to oh. be belligerent. Uh, he's a unique character. Jeff actually worked with him for many years, I think, at Clemson. And he has said, you know, it's a real shame. Todd's really talented. He's reached out to Todd Wood. I've reached out to him, say, review my papers, uh, and has refused. I mean, to me, conversation is a two-way street. You, you talk, you listen. I'll read his papers, I'll cite his papers, Jeff has reached out to him, can you please review this? and he refuses to engage any of this and so to me his statement saying there's no young earth creationist, I'm like he also doesn't seem to be aware of Rob Carter's work and so I know from my own personal reaction, he has declined to engage what we've published and shuts himself off and he said on this blog, uh, he says what I really wish My burden for the Young Earth Creationist movement is to have an independent voice, uh, sort of an independent critic. And that's kind of, you you read his his blog, and that's kind of how he styles himself as. He says he's too tied to the Young Earth Creationist movement to be that, but actually he's distanced himself very significantly. That's not something we go around parading because we're not here to bash people. But uh, that is the the behind-the-scenes reality that we haven't made public just because we're not interested in bashing. But sadly, uh, he is not shown any interest in conversing about it, but seems to feel no restraint about posting publicly things that are not true. So uh, he's not actually having a conversation. He, he's one of these splinter groups that has their own following. You have to ask any time someone says young earth creationist. well, what's your means of accountability? Uh, you'll see things like on our website, other websites, you know, arguments we think young earth creationists shouldn't use. And You'll find out the young Earth creationists are quite offended because they, that's their favorite argument, and even creationist organizations. Well, how dare you say that? And people come alongside, and I well, have to consider this data. They don't—they don't want to be accountable, and so—and—and and we seek accountability. Like I said, Answers in Genesis. We have an editorial review board that reviews everything that goes out. We seek outside review, uh, independent review. We'll have sometimes bi yearly meetings on on subjects. Uh, we had one on the Ice Age, because there might be different views, and one exactly within the Young Earth framework that works. It's a, it, it's, it's, we try to make it a continually self-correcting process, whereas Todd seems to have removed himself from that, not just that process and accountability, but doesn't even want to even talk about it, which is, which is really sad, because he's a very talented individual. Uh, but as, as an example, you know, he, he published an abstract. So not only has he not done it behind the scenes, He's not done it publicly. To me, the, the best way for accountability is written peer review. I mean, you've probably experienced this as well. I could tell you other stories about how I've experienced it. Uh, people are resistant. And that peer review is... I mean, comes from the nature of science we discussed, as you laid out in the first chapter. Science is an inductive method of reasoning. You never prove anything in science. You can only disprove. We're all fall, fallen human beings. There are things I may have missed. There are things Dr. Benham may have missed. Uh, and you seek other scientists to say... You know this methodology. What hypothesis have I not excluded to jump to my own? And in hopes that the group think will then arrive at the conclusion. Uh, so that's what we seek to do. And uh, anyway, so a lot of what Todd has published, let's say on, on human chimpanzee genetics, somebody published something in 2006. Most of Jeff Tompkins' work poststates that. Uh, Todd has published a few abstracts, which are maybe a paragraph, which... You know, if you've ever read the scientific literature, that's not something you can critique. It doesn't give you methodology that you can repeat. It doesn't give you a way to critique it. So he really hasn't published anything, either on the topic, that we can evaluate. Uh, where, you know Jeff's Jeff's methods are transparent. He's He's got detailed lists, so unfortunately he seems to he takes the label, but again, it's, it's not a copyrighted label, and he, and he resists accountability on that front, and even resists our invitations. I mean, he he sets himself up as critical, and I ask you know, my boss, hey, can, can Todd review these papers? And each time, no thanks, uh, just, just takes a very negative attitude, which is a shame.
1: Well, obviously I don't know the ins and outs of young earth creationist, sort of behind-the-scenes sorts of things. What I find interesting about Todd is that he's, he's uh, trained. He's a geneticist and has good training. And uh, in my interactions with him, I found him to be approachable and and willing to dialogue and yeah, I enjoy very much hearing what he has to say, so Let's see, what else should I ask you about? I'll fully admit to not being completely up-to-date on young earth creationist baromenology What does Answers in Genesis hold as the human baromen at this point? And I know Todd is an outlier on this point as well because he includes an Australopithecine within the human baromen uh, what's Answers and Genesis' take on that right now? How far does the Barrowman extend?
2: And just a quick clarification, Barrowman is sort of the colloquial term.
1: Created kind. Yeah.
2: Barrowman, I yeah, not colloquial, the technical term. The technical That's term. why it's yeah. Yeah. colloquial if we understood it all. Yeah. So My latest understanding is yeah.
1: that like Neanderthals are human, Denisovans are human, I'm just not sure where Answers in yeah. Genesis is at on that front.
2: And so there's a, there's a history to this field of Barrowmanology uh, that's been sort of the term in the earth literature. I tend not to use it as much just because it tends to be a very specific meaning. But the basic idea is something I referred to earlier, which is uh, we're not species fixity proponents. You know, Again, you, you read scripture from our perspective. God creates kinds, not species. That's not the term used. And on top of that, the land, everything kinds are wiped out, restart in the Middle East. So it's kind of beyond me why the creationists of 1859 would somehow think that geography was fixed when you have a geography that's totally rewritten from a young earth perspective about 4,500 years ago. So we would say there's limited common ancestry. Scripture, again, doesn't give you a whole list of terms. I'll give the derivation very briefly here, and again, you can read more of it in our literature. So Noah's commanded to take two of uh, every land, air-breathing kind, male and female, for the purpose of propagating the seed or the offspring. So that then implies, you know, the purpose is reproduction. Kinds must be they must be able to reproduce, and so as a crude first approximation of what might a kind be then, we've done breeding tests, uh, and since this is dependent upon a specific scientific test, where that kind boundary lies is going to change with time with the data that we have. So 50 years ago, you might not have very many breeding tests, and they might say maybe it's genus, and then, oh, we can actually connect to almost every cat species in a reproductive com- continuum. Now we're going to bump it up to the level of family. As we do more breeding tests, You know, might that change too? Uh, And really, to me, the the ultimate answer is going to, again, be genetics. Fossils aren't inherited. Geography is not inherited. DNA is inherited. So that's going to be the record of ancestry. And it's going to go back to these questions of, you know, it's going to go back to the standard of science. We're going to determine what the kind boundary is by seeing which explanations make the best testable predictions. If I say it's the genus and I can't predict anything in terms of genetic diversity, that's Probably not a good hypothesis, if I say it's family and it's starting to explain what we see, that's the process we'd go about doing it. So then the challenge is, back to your question, what do you do with fossils? So, I didn't mention the Neanderthal DNA when I was talking about 6,000 years, uh, for a variety of technical reasons. I I think the question is still open, you know, most of my evolutionary colleagues would say but they think the DNA is reliable. Uh, I mean, they would all acknowledge that it's degraded, degrades from the ends. You're talking about stuff that has been sitting in the ground from a young earth perspective for thousands of years, from an evolutionary perspective for millions of years. When I was doing DNA uh, analysis as an undergraduate, we would stick stuff in the freezer, minus 20 degrees Celsius for a year, DNA would start doing weird things after year and we'd just toss it. So I'm highly skeptical just based on that experience that we're ever going to be able to recover some sort of reliable DNA From Neanderthals, and I've made technical arguments in my paper saying it doesn't even fit the structure. If anything, if you're going to say it's reliable from a young earth perspective, you have to say it's some sort of hypermutatable. I think, again, the most likely explanation and most boring explanation is that it's degraded. So, to me, we lack the tools. Todd has been trying to do a method um, where he tries to quantize the number of non genetic features among various creatures or species and seeing if you can find groups. Now, what's the challenge with that? Uh, Number one, it's not genetic data. Number two, it's highly dependent on which features you pick. And that's been some of the discussion in the Young Earth literature, some of the responses to his work. Well, you're only looking at teeth and this. And actually, I asked Dave Menton, who taught uh, anatomy and physiology at Washington University for like 33 years. So what do you think of Todd's method? He's like, well, it's exactly what I'd expect from a geneticist trying to do anatomical comparisons, basically, which is... That's not how you do it. So, uh, I think the jury is still open. I guess is a long way of saying that because I think we lack the good tools by which to analyze it. I think it would probably be fairly unanimous that Australopithecines would not, going with what the criteria Dave meant would use, saying here are the here are the distinguishing features of the species we see today, chimpanzees versus humans, and in, in many cases the the fossils that are prominent and being debated. May not even have fossil data for that particular distinguishing feature, certain uh, let's say you 're talking the skull, a certain bone up here in the nose, or you, you look at the fingers, or anyway, Dave Menton can speak that a lot better than I can, but that 's where it 's at at the moment that uh, Todd has been using largely you know, his, his particular methodology, which is statistical quantitative, highly dependent on which data you 're using, and, and you can see that in, in some of the history of his results, and not necessarily weighing distinguishing anatomical features more heavily than things that don't really distinguish species. Okay,
1: good. Okay, another question. <clears throat> One thing as a biologist that I'm often curious about with the young earth literature is that many baromins or accepted groups of relatedness have DNA diversity within them that are actually far greater than human and even human and chimpanzee differences. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious... Why that is the case, or how that you know how that fits in a young Earth creationist model, if we can see mm-hmm. diversity in related groups that exceeds the human chimp difference and from a young Earth perspective that's a, happening in a very short period of time, then why you know how is it that you, that we can bareminologically mm-hmm. reliably locate humans as not related to other mm-hmm. species
2: <laughs> so the question basically is if you look at nuclear DNA sequences. There's a whole bunch of ways you can compare it. There's a whole... There's different categories of differences. Uh, Single nucleotide polymorphisms would be single rung differences, basically, where I have an A and you have a T. Uh, Indels, insertions, and deletions would be I've got a row of these three rungs and you're just missing one, missing those three. You've got whole chunks. It might be I've got this section of... uh, 3 million rungs or 500,000 rungs and you're missing it all together. These are the sorts of things you'll see. We've got four to 4.3 million or so, 3 to 4 million single rung differences around the globe and then a variable number of these, these other types of differences. Actually, the indels are more like, uh, the small ones are 600,000 or so. Uh, all that background to say, let's compare species at the single letter differences. It's, it's easier and we have data for that and it's data that I remember offhand so it's even better. So for humans versus chimpanzees the single letter differences in the regions you can align again ignoring that part that doesn't align uh, You'd have around Well, you saw it, about 26 million or so one percent difference Let's say you compare the tiger to a house cat which we would say are part of the same kind. There are Almost 50 million single letter differences as a general rule of thumb We'd say that species within a family have a common ancestor. So the great apes belong to a single family Uh, Evolutionists would put humans in the same family. We wouldn't, but chimpanzee, bonobo, the two orangutan species, two gorilla species, all part of the same kind, we'd say, came from a common ancestor and boarded the ark. The orangutan gorilla, uh, orangutan chimpanzee differences, I think, anyway, they are 3.4% different. I think it comes out to around 100 million differences. So ten times, well maybe five times higher than what you see in humans. So what does that imply about ancestry? And so this goes back to the question then of what are the tools we're using to determine it? And are there patterns? Are there numbers of DNA differences? And none of those criteria seem to be good tests. Ultimately, the test is what testable prediction does a model make? So uh, right now, I would say it would seem that God created... What? Let me back up. The data I didn't show you, some of which is in my article series and my technical papers, is young earth creationists like myself, I've argued that this idea of pre-existing diversity, God creating Adam and Eve with differences within themselves, applies universally among species. That the cat ancestor on board the ark was front-loaded with a whole bunch of different DNA differences. And those then have led to the origin of species. Actually, the primary cause, we'd say, the origin of species. So from that perspective, I would say it would appear that God created animals with more potential for diversity than humans. So, as it relates to the question of baronology, uh, for many years, the criterion has simply been breeding. And then now, because we're getting DNA data, we can finally bring genetics into it. And so we're now having to develop criterion. What sort of tests can we use to identify common ancestry? Well, what testable predictions does a model make? So if I can say, let's use mitochondrial DNA. Uh, if, and what, let me think of actually a better example. Bovids. So Bovidae family, 135 species alive today. Everything from cattle to sheep to goats to African antelopes. Very diverse family. Uh, cows and sheep differ by 10% of their DNA, I think. So 10 times higher than you ch- chimpanzees. We'd say maybe they have a common ancestor. They're clean animals. So it might get a little sticky, but that's a side note. Uh, mitochondrial DNA, that's where I was going with this. So there's maybe 2,000 differences between... Cattle and sheep at the mitochondrial DNA level Humans versus chimpanzee. There's only 1,400 humans versus humans. You saw the data 80 to 40 So how do you explain the fact that you have cattle and sheep potentially sharing a common ancestor? But there are thousands of differences apart humans we'd say have a common ancestor and not related to anything else less than hundred That'll probably be a function of DNA differences mutation rates. So no one's measured the mutation rate in These bovid species we can make testable predictions Uh, and really that's what it's going to come down to. So I would say you know, we've made retrodictions for humans. We can make testable predictions for Khoisan peoples, other people groups in which it has yet to be measured. I can make predictions then for sheep and cattle. And the success of this model will be seen on how well those predictions bear out in reality.
0: Ms. As a lay person listening to you, I just want to make sure if I understood what, you, what you're saying. Uh, are you saying that uh, on the ark... Uh, there was a common ancestor for sheep and for cattle, and that sheep, potentially, okay, you are. Is what's what's potentially I mean? Just so I'll understand, are you saying then? For
2: sake of argument, yes, but because they're clean, and then there's the question of seven of the clean to the unclean. Could it have been that there was three different-looking representatives? I don't know. I'm just so for unclean cats would be easier example. Two two cats, and you have everything from tigers to house cats to jaguars in between.
0: <laughs> for for my simple mind. Uh, sheep and, and cattle are, are pretty dramatically different
1: species. Mm-hmm.
0: So whenever I hear someone saying that's a commons that 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 they had a common ancestor, well you know you know I got in trouble for, for everything I that I, I I thought about that I thought that was quite a remarkable thing. So I just wanted to to make sure I understood that. Do you have any other questions you want to ask? before I turn him
1: loose on you. Sure, sounds good. Um, just maybe one or two more, if okay, that's OK. OK, uh, <laughs> then, it, then it'll be my turn, right? Then I'll be on the hot seat. Yeah. Um, just a quick question. When you say those examples of pseudogenes with mutations and nested mm-hmm. hierarchies, do young earth creationists accept that within accepted barements? Like, would you, would you look at gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans and say, yeah, they, they would have inherited that mutation from a common ancestor?
2: I would like to. OK. So it goes back to the question of how do you identify common ancestry? And if there was a mutational signature, I would embrace it quickly. But I would say what we call a mutation and what we don't is virtually impossible at present because of the non-intuitiveness of DNA. So again, back to the language analogy, we speak less than 1% of the DNA language as far as I'm concerned. Uh, You just have to look at the history of genetics. Uh, Back in the 40s, one gene, one protein, one function – I'll talk to people from a generation ago. I taught a class at Southern Evangelical Seminary on biology and, and origins, and had a gentleman there who's like, everything I'm learning is the opposite, or this is totally different from what I learned in school. It's changing that fast. And so what you might look at a textbook a decade ago is now being totally overturned. And so things that look like mutations, because they look like broken genes, I think of pseudogenes as a specific example. So when I was in graduate school, one of the newfangled unexpected ways of DNA function uh, is actually something near and dear to my heart so what I worked on as an undergraduate is RNA so DNA is transcribed RNA translated to protein it's the intermediate between the two we're working on RNA regulation my boss was always RNA is the underappreciated this is the big deal and we need to make more of a stink about it well he's basically been vindicated because the amount of literature on RNA function is uh, more than I can tell. him mean, there's reviews written on this. Anyway, back to graduate school. So one of the shocking discoveries I think made originally in plants was RNAi, RNA interference, small, short, RNA snippets that bind to, and I think there's base pair differences there that look like mistakes, bind to other RNAs and regu- regulate the function. And I remember sitting in class, and one of my profs saying, Andrew Fire was in Massachusetts. He was one of the guys, he's going to get the Nobel Prize, and sure enough, got the Nobel Prize for this. So what are pseudogenes? Uh, there are sometimes anti-sense versions. To me, what comes to mind immediately is they're going to function in some sort of RNA regulation. It's just too close. Does it look like a broken gene? Yes, but to me, that's decades ago biology. And I, I'm not being insulting. My point is, do I don't disagree that it looks like a broken gene, but I also see this massive literature that's saying there are all these unexpected things RNA do, and then I look at the fact that we've actually functionally tested less than 1% of the genome... To me, the genetics community has done a really bad job making predictions in terms of function. And that's not an intelligence thing. It's just because we're dealing with a foreign language, a highly compressed... It's beyond the best computer code is really what it comes down to. I mean, we write books. We don't write books that can be read forwards and backwards. DNA can. Uh, You've got proteins. There's a phenomenon, and I've I've written part of this in a paper. One of the first papers I wrote... Uh, Protein moonlighting so one of the 1940s ideas was one gene one protein one function Uh, So some of the mitochondrial DNA proteins well, we know the function it functions this particular enzyme complex It takes this chemical transforms it to this releases water whatever transforms oxygen This particular enzyme takes glucose and it removes this group and it's at this step This is classic it's known well now. We're discovering serendipitous things like oh this enzyme that functions in sugar metabolism is now Binding to DNA in the nucleus? Uh, We have, anyway, moonlighting. Proteins are doing things that you don't even anticipate. Let me explain it by analogy. Proteins, if if you think of our bodies as biological construction projects, we start as a single cell, and all of this is built in the womb, basically, so that the human form, we recognize as this, is apparent by birth. Proteins are one of the main tools for building the body. Protein lighting is analogous to having a multifunctional tool. But what human engineer builds a handle that is a hammer, saw, drill, and a whole bunch of ten other things in one hand? I mean, we, don't, we don't even design. It's, it's science fiction what's going on at the cellular level. So,
0: so if I'm understanding you correctly, let me just, if I could just jump in. You're saying that it's, the DNA code works as if I were reading a book. If I read it this way, it would be... A poem, a Shakespearean sonnet. If I read it, then I read it the other direction. It would be perhaps a newspaper clipping from the Washington Post, and it works both ways.
2: And and so again, some of the classic paradigms. You can go to some of the textbooks I have. They'll say, even in those things we thought we understood. Let's say, uh, you know, this particular DNA sequence codes, you know, is transcribed by this RNA, which is translated this protein. There's this talk of synonymous codon. So. In short, there's 20 amino acids, uh, four different DNA letters. There's different languages in your cell. And four different DNA letters can't code for... One letter then can't code for all 20. It's, it's groups of three. Three DNA letters code for a single unit of a protein. Uh, and I was taught the third... So there's some redundancy. That's the point I'm trying to get at. There's some redundancy in DNA coding for protein. Well, I was taught, well, that's... There's this wobble position, position three. If you look at textbooks, statistically, then, you know, It's it can be variable. Well, now we're finding that actually it plays a functional role, and there's even reviews being written about this now that these aren't just well it tolerates error. The cell uses different redundant elements to slow and speed the process. I mean the level of information compression into every single letter is is really boggles the mind. So that was a different example than you're asking about, but. It's a crazy field. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: Anything, one more question? One more question. Then, okay. Then Although there's, there's some things I would say in response. Yeah. But, Please do. We but, can have uh, a dialogue. This is a dialogue. Oh, okay. Well, okay. I don't want to take up too much time, but there are cases where we see pseudogenes, where we actually see this in many cases, actually where we see the same gene in a functional state, say in mouse relative to the human genome. And we have the ability to determine its function experimentally in mouse. So one of the examples I gave was along those lines. So what do you think of those kind of pseudogenes? Like where we actually have experimental evidence that it has a certain role in mouse, it's in the same little block of genes in the human genome, yet it's nonfunctional, or at least it can't have the same function that's in the mouse. So why is it that we see that pattern? I'm curious. From a young earth perspective, what does one do with that? I would say,
2: and you can tell me if I'm articulating the argument correctly, there's an element of homology in the argument and there's an element of non-function. You have the homology in that it's shared. Mm. But then the other element of the argument in human looks like it's non-functional. Sure. So, to the homology element, I go back to design and saying, uh, human engineers reuse common patterns for similar purposes. What would be the purposes then in DNA? And that's to me where it gets sticky. Because we're so bad at determining purpose. I mean, the whole idea of protein moonlighting, the whole idea that RNA is doing all these crazy things, And I mean, is it weekly, monthly, that some new discovery is coming out? So, can I predict at the moment what that human gene is doing? No. But in five years, I have a pretty good guess that I will. Because it's going that fast. And it's not what we anticipate it to be. Uh, and, it's, and there's so many interactions in the cell. So one of the hottest fields right now is the 3D arrangement of DNA in the nucleus, that the cell not only uses DNA according to sequences that exist before and after the gene, but it's how it's compressed and uncompressed and wound together. Uh, there are so many serendipitous discoveries, I think it would be foolish to try to assign a function. I don't know that anyone could assign a function, And what it turns out to be will probably blow our minds. And I think it would be highly premature to say it's non-functional because of the trajectory. So many paradigms have been overturned in the last decade. I mean, I've been, I graduated 2003 from undergrad, and I have my undergrad textbook. And so, what is that, 15 years or so, and things are being overturned then. It's so fast. Uh, Like I said, I would love to have a tool to say, this shows the signature of ancestry, this one doesn't. And I don't think I can do that, given how fast things have changed, in terms of what we say is functional and what we say is not.
1: One last question. I asked this question of Georgia Purdom Mm -hmm. back in 2011, I think it was. She and I had a similar dialogue at Letourneau University, and it's out there on YouTube if you want to see it. Um, I asked her this question, and I'm curious, so I remember her response, and I'm curious of your response as well. See if we're consistent. See if you're consistent (laughs) or not. Not that I'm trying to catch you out or anything. I'll keep my phone in my
2: pocket in case she's watching. I'm going to text me. We can't
1: cheat. Yeah. And I may not get it exactly the same, but I asked her something to the effect of, do you think, you know, is there any evidence that could potentially convince you that your position on origins is incorrect? Is there any, can you think, can you conceive of evidence that might convince you that that you've taken the wrong tack on things? I'm just genuinely curious. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: It's a good question, and I would say it's more of a philosophical question.
1: Yeah, in some ways, sure.
2: There's a scientific element, a theological element, and a philosophical element, and I'll answer each of those in turn. So, (laughs) the scientific element, I've given false-file predictions, and I'm happy to go test in the lab. Let's go do it. Let's go test this. What have I been saying all along, though? Take evolution versus creation as an example. The the non-evolution, the non-genetic evidences. I've said, you know, this fails to reject evolution, fails to reject young earth. There's all sorts of hypotheses that it probably fails to reject. Within the young earth model, we'd say there's, you know, scripture clearly teaches these things, and on these things it's silent. And even in the arenas where it's silent, there's a whole lot of hypotheses you can create. So... Let's say I make a prediction on the mutation rate, and it's false. Does that mean it's only this or young, you know, it's only this young Earth position or not? <coughs> There's probably five other young Earth positions that fit it as well that it could create. So basically what I'm getting at is science is a very, it's simultaneously a very poor and very powerful tool to know the world. It's very powerful, because we're sitting here with our iPhones and technology is advanced, and that's due to science. But it's very poor Especially when it comes to origins Because the further back you go in time The fewer The less and less you know About what potential competing explanations exist And so In that sense science is very weak And I think it would be foolish To base Such a Gigantic question Such as origins And the truth of scripture On such a weak and unstable discipline Powerful discipline but inherently weak in terms of absolute truth and such big, big questions that touch on so many topics. So religiously, we have a very specific hermeneutic uh, that we adhere to, so it would require a hermeneutical change uh, to, to change my view then on, on Scripture. That's tied the philosophical as well. So what is my view of origins? My origins is a multidisciplinary question in which science plays a role, a limited role, because all it can do is eliminate competing explanations, and there's a whole lot of them that need to be eliminated. Uh, And science is inherently pragmatic. At the end of the day, there are some, and I would like to consider myself one of them, who are interested in knowledge for knowledge's sake. But a lot of technology is driven by, does it work, can it work, great, move on. Uh, We want to send men to the moon, so we're gonna do the physics until we get it right. Do we need to do the physics until we understand the last detail about the nature of matter, no. We've got men to the moon, it's going to get funded. I mean, there's a, there's a money role in all this, too. So, that also makes science science a weak way to, to answer big questions. It's a great way to know the natural world, but when we're dealing with natural, supernatural, and all that, you can see how this, this becomes weak. I love science, and I love to do science, and I think it's super exciting, the research I'm doing, but I also recognize the inherent limitations, and the need to bring in scripture and other things as well. So, I fully embrace making testable predictions, recognizing that there's a whole lot more. And you being an old earth creationist, I was fully anticipating you the wheels turning and saying, well, how does this work with old earth creation? I'd say, well, there's probably testable predictions I could come up with there too. Just as an example, a practical example, does what I show you tonight distinguish or eliminate old earth creation? Fuz Ron and you, Ross, would have to answer that. And it might not. There might be some things I've shown you tonight that might seem to reject evolution but not reject old earth creation. You see where I'm going with this. The point is I haven't considered everything that's out there. And probably neither Dr. Venom or I will ever consider everything that's out there. That's why science changes so much uh, as our our knowledge of the world grows. So, scientifically, do I have hypotheses that can be falsified and changed? Sure. Will that change my young earth view? It's going to be pretty tough because there's so many things that are still compatible with the young earth view. Other hypotheses on specific topics. uh, And to me, that's true in general of science. I mean, even hopefully as you've seen tonight, when it comes to potential evolutionary explanations for the different compartments, you have inherited differences, you have selection, you can deal with, you can deal with the time scale, I, mean, I think you'd agree. Even within the evolutionary framework, it's hard to find an either or. It's a either this element or this, 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 and this versus either this, 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 and this and can we find one where there's what I call in the book a category one experiment where it's going to, if it goes this way, it's clearly young earth. If it's this way, it's evolution. Oftentimes, it's, most of the time, it's never the case. It's, well, it kind of favors this way, but over this way. So I think that's the reality of what we're dealing with. And so scientifically, false Bible predictions, yes. Uh, religiously, it's a hermeneutical question, and, and that's in, in, entrenched in philosophy as well. So.
0: Well, I am glad that you uh, pointed out that I'm actually in a mediating position. And that's one of the reasons I have uh, enjoyed... Uh, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I've enjoyed uh, this night is that I'm actually... Uh, in a position, literally, in between the two of you, and so, <laughs> uh, so, so that has that has put me in the proverbial catbird seat in more ways than one. Uh, Dr. Jensen, uh, excellent presentations, excellent answers. Now it's your your opportunity to to make observations and ask questions to Dr. Bender.
2: So first of all, thank you as well, and and hopefully you've seen. I really enjoyed, especially that first chapter and the way. Uh, Nature of science laid out and even many as you're presenting the uh, language change and such Sitting there thinking about speciation in 4,500 years and Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that's a useful analogy and here's how we see DNA change And actually if you read anyway, I'm supposed to ask you questions, so I'll stop and ask you questions (laughs) (laughs) So I presented some strong challenges on mutation rates and such What would your response be to those or some of the things? I put more punchy.
1: Sure, yeah, sure. (laughs) Certainly on the the, the variation that we see in mitochondrial DNA, mitochondrial DNA is very constrained, right, because it's very small. And there's very little, as you know, as a biologist, there's very little space in between genes on mitochondria. And, in fact, many of the genes actually overlap one another. So I wouldn't expect, and I don't suppose you would either, just as a biologist, that the differences, the raw differences that we would see between different groups would solely be the result of raw mutation without any selection that's actually removing deleterious mutations from the population. So I wouldn't expect to see those raw differences merely just be the, like a sort of a neutral clock of, you know, certain mutations. I was actually curious about your thoughts on Neanderthal DNA for that specific reason, because if you include Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA, then, of course, that makes the problem. You know, there's a lot more variation there to account for. So I would see I would see definitely selection for that particular limited, because of the, the sort of dense nature of the information that you see in a mitochondrion's uh, genome. When it comes to nuclear DNA, I would be more comfortable with thinking about it in more neutral terms because um, the evidence we have is that a large amount of our DNA doesn't have a sequence-specific function. Um, so I'm more comfortable as sort of a neutral, you know, without considering the effects of selection more generally for nuclear DNA for that reason. Which is not to say that there isn't strong natural selection on certain parts of nuclear DNA, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so that would be my, my general thoughts on that particular question.
2: So I'll put it more punchy. Sure. Because I did it in general to an audience. I'll put it to you. So what testable predictions would you be able to make? from that mindset. Can you predict the rate of mitochondrial mutation in Khoisan? Can you predict Mm, the rate of mutations in cats?
1: Sure. It really depends on having an understanding of the, the functional constraints on that particular one. So again, it's a lot easier to do that kind of analysis when you're looking at sequences that are almost neutral. And one of the things that we can see in nuclear DNA is you can actually look at nucleotide substitution rates when you compare related organisms And we see that nucleotide substitution rates are actually much larger or much faster in regions that don't correlate with with things that we think are functional. So if you look at um, gene coding sequences, they have a substitution rate that's far below what we would see in say introns, the, the bits in between coding sequences that are spliced out. Now there's still some functional constraint there as well, of course. We see even faster substitution rates in pseudogene sequences, for example. So these are lines of evidence that give us confidence that there are different parts of the nuclear genome that are under different selection constraints. So I'm going to be naughty. Pardon me. I'm going to be naughty. Okay. He's going to be naughty. All right. <laughs> the gloves come off.
2: <laughs> what number could you put on it, and is it something you'd be willing to test in the lab?
1: Ah. For mitochondrial rates?
2: For any species. For any species. So I'm claiming I can mm. make a prediction yeah. for cats.
1: Sure. Can you? Or for the cosine, for example. For I'm actually the... very yes. fascinated to see you make that prediction. And I'm very I'm interested to see if that's because that's that's actually that takes guts, right, to put it on the line like that. Are you right? all
0: making are you all daring
1: each other? Yeah. <laughs> the the trick is, is there gonna be a double dog dare somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> the trick is is that if you're taking functional constraint into, into as part of the equation and not just sort of raw mutation frequency, then you actually have to have a good understanding of the selective constraints in those different sections of that genome and also in the environment that they're in. And that's something that we don't have ready access to for a lot of different species. So it would be tricky from an, an evolutionary perspective to put a specific prediction on that.
2: So yep. I'm going to be even naughtier. So if you can't make a prediction for it, should it be considered science?
1: Ah, well, it's not that it's it's not that a prediction couldn't be made. It just requires a large amount of information that I'm not sure that we have ready access to. So it certainly could be done if enough effort was was put to it. Absolutely, and we have seen good predictions made. Say like with the incomplete lineage sorting, we predicted the percentages in advance before we looked at the gorilla genome, before we looked at the orangutan genome, and that was because we had data that was, we had the relevant pieces of the puzzle that we could use to make that prediction. So we certainly could make that prediction for mitochondrial DNA, but it would require resources that we don't have at ready hand. But they could be accumulated if enough effort was put into it.
2: So if I understand the independent literature sorting correctly, the prediction was after DNA variation was already obtained for these species?
1: No, it was prior to sequencing their genomes.
2: Yes, I guess I'm saying we already had genes, other sequences, we had a subsections a sec- a of the A small genomes. subset of it, yes. Yeah.
1: And, and we had estimates of population sizes that, are, that were part of that. But we had not looked at a full genome sequence. And we were actually making the prediction off of a very small subset of the DNA. Yeah.
2: I guess my point is, uh, I thought my mind, being naughty, <laughs> it seems a little bit like cheating. Can you predict whether an average guy off the street can, can can he predict how far he's going to hit a baseball? And you let him hit 10 times, you get the average and you say, yeah. How much of a prediction is that? Prediction is, I predict 450 feet and I know nothing about you. That to me is a prediction, I think. That's what I'm arguing I can do
1: Mm -hmm.
2: for mitochondrial DNA without getting all these. So would you say in that light, young earth creation should be treated as science?
1: I'm actually, science doesn't matter where it gets its hypotheses from. That's one of the beautiful things about it. You can have completely, like, you can have a wide variety of where hypotheses come from. And scientists are actually very pragmatic people. They don't mind what your worldview is. They don't mind what your views on God are. One of the things I experienced, and you probably may have as well, as a PhD and postdoc in secular settings is that What counts in science is predictive power. What counts in science is whether or not your ideas bear experimental fruit over a long period of time. So nobody really minds where the predictions come from as long as they fit with the data that we have and that they make good predictions going forward.
2: So would you say the Young Earth view should be considered science?
1: Should I? Does science, like I said, it doesn't matter to me where predictions come from. That whole demarcation question of what science versus non-science, philosophers get lots of, you know, that's how they get their paychecks on science versus non-science. Um, so, yeah, what, what matters in science is its ability over a long period of time to make accurate predictions.
0: Any other questions before we go to the audience? Okay. Well, um, we do have some questions, uh, and so let me just go back and forth. Dr. Jameson, is, let, me, let me ask you this first one. Um, a, a, an obs- a watcher has asked this. He said, uh, would the young earth position expect genetic evidence regarding uh, uh, the fall? Would there not be an expectation of a massive recreation after the fall? In other words, would not young earth creationism require a massive genetic rewrite given uh, what young earth creationism thinks happen to animals that they were transformed from, from uh, plant eaters to carnivorous? If so, if the answer is yes, what research is being done or exists to support this claim? That there would be a massive alteration of bodily morphology and complete system rebalance. Does that question make mm-hmm. sense?
2: And it's, it's a common question. I'll restate it this way. So young earthers would say no death before the fall including animal death. No carnivory, put it that way. No pathogenic E. coli. At least, no no disease, that sort of thing. So where does this come from today? What's the origin of these particular species and structures? Where did lions get the ability to tear flesh? Where does pathogenic E. coli come from? Where do viruses come from? And there's four major explanations, none of which... So the answer is basically no, I'd say, massive genetic rewiring. Here's why. Uh, you can get pathology simply by changing the environment. E. coli in the gut is good. E. coli in the blood is bad, potentially lethal. So you can find, um uh, forgetting the name of the bacteria. There's soil bacteria that do fine in our body, bad. So changing simply the balance of the environment, the harmony of the environment, internal environment, external environment can lead to pathology. Uh, Degeneration, you've got uh, pathogens that are dependent on us as hosts or other creatures as hosts. If they once were free living, that may not have been a pathology. So you've got change in environment, you've got degeneration as an explanation for pathology. Uh, you've got repurposing, I might be wrong in the story, but I want to think the history of the Nobel Prize. Did Nobel invent TNT? I want to think he thought he invented something hoping this would end all wars, and then he saw what his technology was being used for, felt terrible, but so fun of the Nobel Peace Prize. Maybe I've got this story totally backwards. Anyway, the point is you can use TNT for good, you can use it for destructive purposes. Uh, you can use sharp teeth to tear flesh, you can use it to open coconuts and watermelons. Not that there are necessarily those plants around back then, it may have been different. The point being, you can get Aggressive behavior simply by repurposing whether it's good or bad depending it depends on how it's used So that'd be a simple explanation Uh, Some might say well There's a whole digestive system short for carnivores long for herbivores Pandas have a short digestive system and they subsist in bamboo. So it's it's not Quite the relationship that we necessarily predicted to be and we're looking at one point in time and then last is maybe more related to the question, latent genetic information, here's how I'm going to derive it. There are some plants, there's different types of photosynthesis in different types of environments, whole biochemistry, whether you're in the desert or the tropics. And you might think, from a young Earth perspective, "Ah, God must have created these separate, totally different biochemistry. Well, it turns out some of these plants can interbreed. So you start dialing the clock back and saying, okay, and and, and sometimes the difference between the two is just a simple genetic switch so going back to the idea of front-loading genetic information Uh, now this will get into Calvinist theology so let's step on some toes (laughs) there is the potential depending on your theology that God could have front-loaded information that could have been switched on after the fall and that's all I'm going to say about that theological topic
1: (laughs) Can I be naughty for a minute? Yes, or no, be naughty. <laughs> I, I kid a little bit, but we see exquisite adaptation for carnivory in the fossil record in present-day animals. I would have a hard time looking at an 8-year-old boy and saying, T-Rex ate coconuts. I really would. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious what you think of that. I'm sorry, that's a little off the cuff, but yeah. <laughs>
2: no, and that's a legitimate question, and you could think of it, here's maybe my first response. You've got lions who seemed designed to kill, and we'd say are relatives of house cats. So how much of, and, and, and I'd say most of those differences from a genetic perspective were front-loaded, and it's through a process I didn't have time to get into, the result of post lood speciation. So the first question in my mind is, uh, where in the speciation timeline do they arise, and who are their relatives? Yes, there's things that look designed to kill. And so a design argument would say, God made them that way to kill. And that's a strong argument. And that then gets into theological question. And I won't give away my theology, but I'm comfortable with God knowing what's happening and front-loading it in and seeming making them designed to kill. So I'm I'm fine with saying no coconuts. Uh, Yes, they look designed to kill. And... We've lived in a sinful world, from a young earth view, for most of our history, so we're looking at judgment. And God has exercised judgment repeatedly throughout history, on a global scale, we'd say, from a young earth perspective. So, it's a harsh reminder of what we'd say. It goes back to the Adam and Eve question. How's that for a tie-in?
0: So, are you comfortable with the idea that the elephant walking through the Garden of Eden uh, maybe stepped on some insects and killed them?
2: That gets to a fuzzy issue of where do we draw the line of life versus non-life? What's the nefesh, basically?
0: And I'm glad to, you know, I'm glad to have that theological discussion with
2: you. Or should I say it's a squishy line if it's stepping (laughs) on me? Squish away.
0: All right, let me, let me, since we're talking theological questions, Dr. Venema, uh, one that you have gotten a lot, several have asked. You've you've done a... uh, very uh, powerful, uh, you've done a very good job of making a very powerful argument for that change is on a gradient, mm-hmm. that is gradual. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is true of the hominids. Mm-hmm. And so when we ask that population mm-hmm. of 10,000 that were, uh, you know, what was their previous generation and they're just imperceptible in the changes, mm-hmm. then where does human uniqueness in the Imago Dei fit into this?
1: Great questions, yeah. absolutely. And biologically, it's a very difficult answer. But biology isn't the whole story, right? So even within among Christians who accept evolutionary creation, there's a range of views on these topics. Some hold to some sort of punctate event where God calls our species into relationship with him. And they typically they would view the imago dei as, um, as a relationship, that it would not be predicated solely in our biology, but it would be this relationship that we have. So we're called to be stewards of creation, we're called to subdue and rule as we see in Genesis. So image in that case is then not so much connected to our biology, although I mean it's going to have to take a certain amount of biology for us to have a relationship with our Creator and fulfill that relationship and that stewardly responsibility that we have. Um, One of the reasons why I'm a bit uncomfortable in connecting image to particular biological characteristics is that we can look at human variation in the present day and any characteristic you happen to pick, you can find individuals in the present day who are outside of that or on the edge of that variation. So we can say, well, okay, intellect is the part of the image of God. As a species, yes, you know, we need a certain amount of cognitive capability to relate to our Creator. But then we have individuals who have severe developmental disabilities and they are as fully as much made in the image of God as anyone else. So, I prefer to look at image of God as a relational aspect. And among evolutionary creationists, some are comfortable with that relationship happening gradually over time or coming into being gradually over time. And other evolutionary creationists feel that there would have been a, a sort of a punctate event where our species was deliberately and, and punctately called into relationship with God. So there's sort of that range of diversity there. OK. Yeah. Good question, though. Any comment or question on that?
0: OK. OK. Um, then back to Dr. Uh, uh, to Dr. Jeanson then. Um, you 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 talked about it's not a cloning event, uh, that Adam and Eve were not a cloning event. However, Eve was taken from the rib of Adam. So uh, one, uh, one uh, observer asked, couldn't that or shouldn't that be understood as a cloning event?
2: How much time do we have left? Um,
0: <laughs> just a few minutes. Because there's the... Yeah.
2: There's the Obvious question that no, one, no one's asked yet, but I don't, I don't want to miss it. I'll answer that one quick.
0: Okay, well then, okay, go
2: ahead. Uh, yes, she's taken from a side, so that would imply that if Adam was created with two different versions of his DNA, she would have been virtually identical to his two different versions, except for, you know, sex chromosomes, obviously, she's female. And what's interesting is, if you look around the globe, most of our DNA varieties come in one of two versions, fitting that sort of idea. So, is she a clone of Adam? Yes and no, there's all sorts of differences within Adam, differences within her. So, you could call it that, but usually when we talk about cloning, we're saying making a genetically identical version. Is she genetically identical? Well, if you want to call a whole bunch of, different, a whole bunch of differences identical, I guess so. Um, yeah, so there's that element, but it seems to fit what we see in, in biology.
1: All right. Any Question, comment? So I'm just curious on that point. So you're saying that there would be new created differences in the process of making Eve? I'm just trying to understand it from a... No,
2: in that sense it might seem to be like cloning. She's made, like Adam, she has, you know, except for the XY, obviously, because she's Although female. Adam,
1: Adam has an X, so all you need is two yes. copies of that X, right?
2: Well, I guess I'm saying not completely identical because she's got to have something that makes her female. Sure. Uh, but otherwise, would his chromosome 22, his two different pairs, look the same as Eve's? Potentially. Okay. But both of, the, you know, Adam's number one of that pair and number two of that pair look different from each other, as do Eve's from one another. And then that'll lead to all sorts of, the number, the potential for variety is incredible.
1: Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, I'm curious about that just from a technical point of view because. Some young earth creationist materials seem to posit four different starting points. But what seems like you're saying is that there's just really two. So I'm curious. I'm just, yeah, sorry. I'm kind of just.
2: A priori, you might expect that. Rob Carter's the one who pointed out to me saying, you do have that from the rib. Does that mean it has to be the same? Maybe, maybe not. And then he said, well, most of our DNA differences come in two versions, implying then it goes back to just two different versions rather than four.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: We're, we're running out of time, so let me ask you uh, the question that you started with, uh, or that you asked to Dr. Jensen. Mm. What would um, what would cause you to do a rethink? Mm. What type of evidence uh, or what mm-hmm. kind of new development mm. might make you say, "Okay, I need." In other words, what kind of discovery or, or hypothesis might uh, Dr. Jensen present that you'd say, "You know, I'm gonna have to really think
1: about this." Mm. Interesting. Well, as a scientist, we're all, scientists are always open to new information. It's actually interesting, Nathaniel, your answer was very, very long and detailed. Um, uh, Your colleague's answer a few years ago was not. It was very brief, and the answer was no evidence, right, because it's a scriptural issue. What I see um, on this issue, so yeah, scientifically, if young earth creationism, you know, over the next decade wins the day scientifically, Absolutely, scientists go with the evidence, no problem. I don't see that happening. Um, There's lots of lines of evidence that we haven't talked about tonight, geological evidence, those kinds of things that I think make the young earth creationist position scientifically untenable. But say, you know, it's conceivable that, you know, scientists are always open to new evidence, so it's conceivable scientifically that it could shift, I suppose. But I would be extremely surprised. I would also be surprised... If we, you know, could I conceivably shift my views on heliocentrism? You bet. It could well be that there's a better model out there. Now, that better model is going to have to incorporate the data that we already know about, and it's going to have to do a better job of explaining it than the mainstream data, or the mainstream models of explaining it now. But any scientist would always put a caveat on anything. Even things that are extremely well-established in science can be shifted, but I don't think we're going to change heliocentrism anytime soon. And I don't think we're going to change evolutionary biology anytime soon either.